Yeah, really glad, uh, really glad you're here. Um, especially if you're checking out for the first time, RUF just kind of hopes to be really a safe place for tired and exhausted Christians to be refreshed by the grace of Jesus when you realize he doesn't love you because you're good, um, but he loves you because of what he's done for you. And we hope it's a really safe place if you're unconvinced uh, about Christianity and who Jesus is. Um, what we're going to try to do this semester, uh, it's a little different. We're not going through a book of the Bible, per se. We're, going to, we're looking at relationships. Um, and what I'm trying to put before you every week is that the Bible assumes that relationships aren't just an aspect of your life. They're the centrality of who you are. Um, some of you are still here. Why are you all here a second time? That means you have relationship problems if you're sticking around for the second one. Um, um, Unless you're playing music, of course, you have to be here. Um, But, right, relationships aren't just an aspect of who you are. They are central to who you are. And it is how God works in your life. And we looked last week, right, about how, um, if you were here, how we are made in the image of God. And what that means is you were created for relationships. You were made in the image of a community, a communal God. He's in relationship with himself. And that's the God that you were made in his image. So you have to have relationships. And they're good. But what we can't do is stop there because the Bible continues on. And just a couple nights ago, uh, I have a four-year-old daughter, Shelby, a two-year-old daughter, Annie. I was was putting Shelby to bed and I'd read her a book and I kind of did the thing that we sometimes do. And I just said, hey, Shelby, do you know that your daddy loves you? And she smiled, and she said yes. And then, and then the smile came off her face, and, and she said, Ethan doesn't love me. And I said, what? And she, Ethan's somebody in her class, and she said, Ethan today um, came out to the playground, and he told me we aren't friends anymore. And she, her lips started quivering, and she started crying. And I'm telling you, the, the crying that was coming from her, it was different than any other cry I'd heard, right? It's different than a cry when she gets injured or different than a cry she got scared. It was this deep, just sadness where I, I started crying, and I now hate a four-year-old named Ethan. Um, so whatever that does. Uh, the joke worked the second time around. Good job. Um, but, but look, even a four-year-old realizes this. The only way that you're going to avoid pain in relationships and real hurt is if you actually never enter a relationship. But see, that creates a quandary. Because last week we talked about how you're made for relationships. You can't survive without them. But if the only way you can avoid pain is to actually remove yourself from them. You will dehumanize yourself. It's just real. The truth is that even your best relationships, whether it's your relationship with your parent, a sibling, a friend, your boyfriend, whatever, the best relationships are messy. And the best relationships involve pain, and they're to some degree or another dysfunctional. And what we're going to look at tonight is Genesis 3, because the Bible's answer for that reality is sin. Our sin. And we're always wanting to, um, those who are unconvinced about Jesus and checking it out, to, to feel comfortable. So what I want you to think about is this. I challenge you with this notion. I want you to think about and find a better reason for the brokenness of this world than Genesis 3. You come up with a better explanation of why your relationships are so dysfunctional and painful than this. And try to let Scripture diagnose yourself and see if it doesn't make sense of who you are. 
So let's uh, consider God's word together. Let me pray for us. Lord, this, um, this is your word, and we are thankful for it. Um, or many of us are tired. Many of us are tired of playing the game of being the Christian that has it together and knowing that inside we're falling apart and, um, and, and we're apathetic in our love towards you. Many of us are bored with Jesus, Lord. Others of us, um, and we are. We've tasted and seen that the Lord is good this week, and we want to hear from your word. And so, Lord, would you meet us wherever we are? Lord, would you do the hard work? Of, uh, of exposing our sin tonight, which is always difficult. But Lord, would you then also expose the fact that your grace and your mercy is greater and let that drive us to love you and love other people well. In your son's name I pray, amen. All right, Genesis 3, it should be on the, uh, the back of your sheet. Um, <clears throat> I'm going to skip around a little bit. Genesis 3, chapter, uh, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say you should not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. So she eats, and then she gives it to Adam. And then verse 7, Then the eyes of both, of, then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you've done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock, above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And then verse 20. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the, she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. The psalmist calls the word of God sweeter than honeycomb. Uh, May Genesis 3, even a difficult passage, be that. All right. So what I'm going to suggest is that um, what you see here is that Adam and Eve rebel against God's authority. And it's here. It's here in their rebellion, what the Bible calls sin, that I think you'll find is the root of everything that goes wrong in your relationships. And so... So we're going to look at chapter 3, and we're just going to ask, what in the world are the signs of relational dysfunction going on in here? And maybe, maybe it'll expose us. And the signs, four things, insecurity, covering, blame-shifting, selfishness. Those are always the signs of dysfunction in relationships. First, insecurity. I did, oh, I forgot to say this. Les Newsom was my campus minister at Ole Miss. Shamelessly stole from him uh, tonight. So thank you, Les Newsom, even though you don't listen. Um... Look, insecurity, this is where we're by far going to spend the most time. Um, I want you to see that insecurity is what defines Adam and Eve after they sin. That this fear takes them over. Right? Because if you read chapter 3, right after you read chapter 1 and 2, and you hold those two together, the contrast is so apparent that it's staggering. 
right? Because Genesis 2, last week, when we looked at it, it ended this way. That God makes everything good. Everything from the word of his power comes, comes uh, into existence. And the pinnacle of his creation is mankind that he makes in his image. And he says it's good. And he takes pleasure in it. And the, and the beauty and the brilliance of Genesis 2 is that there's this picture of Adam and Eve married, but their security, their identity is wrapped up in the love of God and in the fact that he has looked at them and takes pleasure in them and says, this is good. That is their identity. That's who they are. But in verse 10, right, when Adam and Eve sin, when they rebel against God's authority, the result... It's crazy. God comes to them in verse 10, and Adam, who once was in the warm security of God's love, what does he say? I was afraid because I was naked. It's paralyzing fear. And the God who just delighted in them, who just was enamored with them, who cherished them, now that relationship is characterized by paralyzing fear and a loss of security. Why? Why does sin always lead to insecurity? Because, here's what I want to suggest, the essence of what sin is, whatever, whatever definition you have out there, or maybe you're trying to figure it out, it's at least this, that the heart of sin is that you, find, you turn from finding your identity and your worth in the God of this universe, and you put it in something else. And when you do that, you're insecure. Because you know the thing that you're putting your trust in is your identity. It's not permanent, and it can change. And you feel that. And so what you end up doing is living fearful of losing whatever your identity is in, whether it's popularity or sports or whatever, and and we're desperate in insecurity. That's the definition of worship. It's whatever you find your value in. Whatever defines you and says, this is what makes me somebody, that's what you're worshiping. So the Bible never asks, do you worship? It just says, what are you worshiping? Or who are you worshiping? All right, there's an, uh, I heard a pastor talking about uh, an Ivy League counselor that was a friend of his. He actually wasn't a Christian. But they were talking about just kind of the students at this particular Ivy League. And he made a really interesting comment that caught the pastor off guard. He said, you know, what I've started finding is that is that the students I deal with at, at this Ivy League school, they, they have inordinately high depression rates. And I said, really? Why do you think that is? Here's what he said. He said, because most of the people who come to Ivy League, right, when they were in, when they were in high school, they weren't, they weren't the most athletically gifted, usually. They weren't the most popular. They weren't the most well-liked. But they were the smartest. So he said they found their identity in their academics. He said, and then they come to Ivy League, and somebody has to make Bs. Somebody has to make Cs. And he said, what happens here is an identity crisis. Because their identity, their worth is wrapped up in how they do in school. And all of a sudden that gets threatened. And fear comes. Fear. Because what used to be their identity appears to be removed, or, or they're losing it. And that overwhelming fear of losing the identity leads to depression. I'm not trying to make depression sound simplistic. It can be very complex. But this is why worshiping something, putting our identity in something besides the God of this universe, always leads to insecurity. 
Because you realize it can be taken away. You realize it is fundamentally unstable, the thing that you're trusting in. And because your identity is, is built on something that's impermanent, what you end up doing is being driven by fear to not lose it. And what does that have to do with relationships? It's everything. Because insecurity, I'm telling you, is the primary suffocator and killer of your relationships. It's what does it. Because most of your problems, I'm telling you, stem from this one fact. Trust me from experience. Or really, trust me from Scripture. You worship, you find your identity in the relationship that you're in. And not in the God of this universe. And you've found your value and your identity in what he thinks about you or in what your friends think about you. And therefore, fear rules the day because that is impermanent. It can change. And so what begins to drive you is the fear of losing the dating relationship or losing friendship or fear of being rejected or being alone. And it's killing your relationships. It's suffocating them. So just think, just for a second, this is the longest point. Think about the areas that you really are frustrated in your relationships and ask yourself, what really am I afraid of? What am I afraid of losing? See, this is why, this is why when she broke up with you, how some of you responded is you called her 20 times and you kept declaring your love for her and you kept telling her that you changed But see, it didn't work because it didn't communicate love. It communicated, I don't know what to do with myself now that you're gone. And it's insecurity, and it pushes people away, and she didn't want to come back. Right? This This is what's behind your constant need to know what he did every night. And the constant checking up on him and asking, why hasn't he called me yet? Because there's a fear, a fear of losing him. This is why you're so insecure when when she actually wants to hang out with her friends for a weekend and not you. And you make her feel guilty about it. it. There's nothing attractive about it. It's insecurity. You're saying, I'm fearful of losing you and I won't know what to do with myself. And you don't know who you are if he's still not into you. And it's driving you crazy. And this is why some of you, and this is the one I know, people already confronted me afterwards. It's still true. Apparently I hurt feelings. I'm going to try not to hurt feelings. This is why some of you, and I've done this, but you deal with the pain of a breakup that is real. I'll never belittle that. But here's how you deal with the pain of a breakup, or a well-meaning Christian told you this. That just means that God has somebody better out there for you. You see what you've done? You've tried to bring yourself through the suffering by holding out the idol again. And God has, God has never promised that for you. He's promised to be good for you. That might not give itself an expression of marriage. But we use the idol to bring us through suffering. And this is why the person who desperately needs friends never gets friends right. Because he so needs you to be his friend that it actually pushes you away because you can't handle the worship. And this is why, I think, some of you so found your identity in a relationship and fear is controlling the day that you will not ask a girl out because you so fear rejection. 
And so what you end up doing, right, is you have a lot of friends that are girls, and that's great. But you will not ask her out because you don't want to cut off other possibilities. Thus, you might fear losing the one, who, whatever that means. Right? And so what you do is you sit there, and the only way you're going to ask her out is if you are absolutely convinced that she likes you and she'll say yes. And it's just insecurity. And it's actually hurting the relationships. And some of you are in bad relationships that everybody knows. And, man, it pains me to say this. But you will not get out because you fear being alone. And you say, well, I've dated her for two years. What am I going to do if this stops now? And everybody knows it. And that's it. Whatever you worship, you fear losing. And it's defining your relationships. So that what ends up defining your relationship is not freedom and love and service, but fear of losing. And it becomes utterly selfish. That's the first sign of a dysfunctional relationship, by far the longest. The second thing that happens, right, verse 7 and 8, is they cover up. Right? When they rebel against God, they know that they're guilty. They know that they stand before the gaze of God and God see the holy and perfect and righteous God sees them for who they really are, that it will not be Genesis 2. They'll not be accepted and taken pleasure in. They'll be rejected and condemned. And so it says they were naked and they hid from God. Because nakedness from this point on always, always symbolizes shame. Because they've lost their innocence. They've lost their purity. And now they know that to be exposed, right, for who they are physically, emotionally, spiritually, is a very fearful thing. Because they know if God, first of all, and then other people know who they really are, there won't be acceptance and love. There'll be fear, rejection, and condemnation. And so they hide. This is how sin works. I think we all know this. I think we all know, we all know, that deep down inside, if I'm completely exposed for who I am, Not only before other people will I get rejected, but especially before the gaze of an infinitely righteous God, I won't stand up. And so we hide ourselves in shame from God and from other people. And it's dysfunctional. Dan Allender, a counselor, says, he said, listen to this quote, The dread of being found out is sufficient to fuel radical denial. But the fear is greater than simply losing a relationship. It's the terror that if our dark soul is discovered... We will never be enjoyed, desired, or pursued by anyone. And it's crippling. Right? How much of your relational hurt and dysfunction is due to the fact that you're hiding? Honestly. Right? Hiding always destroys relationships. Because relationships are built on intimacy of knowing you, the real you. And there can be no relationship if... If someone does not know the real you but only relates to it a projection, an image of yourself, and not who you really are. And, and many of you still tonight are hiding from God and you've never met the God of the Bible. You've never met Jesus because you think Jesus loves good people. And so what you do is you hide around niceness and you hide around a good group of friends and you hide by being better than those people. But until you will finally own and uncork how dark and broken we really are, you'll never be thrilled by Jesus' love. You'll never get it. But it also creates dysfunction, not just vertically, but horizontally, right? Because you have to know that the person actually cares for you, the real you. 
Like that's who he or she loves. And we hide in so many ways, right? It's so easy. It's so easy to hide behind Christian language. Right? I can use the right terms. I can, I, I can kind of put up that front. And you're hiding. You're hiding because nobody knows that you're addicted to porn or that you're struggling. And nobody knows the real you. Right? Some of us, what we do is we hide around, we kind of hide behind Christian activity and busyness. Right? And because the scariest thing, the thing that we cannot do is actually to stop. We're forced to actually think about ourselves and see who we are. And so we just stay busy. And nobody knows. Nobody knows how exhausted you are and that what's functioning on the inside of you is if just do a little more, God will keep liking me. And it's tearing you apart. And some of you, and some of you, man, you just, you just hide behind lies. I'm not saying you're not a Christian. I'm not saying that. Christians struggle with sin. But you hide behind this image of Christian maturity. And you're having sex. And you're hiding in your room saying that, that we're watching a movie or that we're just doing whatever. And it's killing you because your friends don't really know what's going on. And, yeah, it's going to destroy the relationship. And others of you, you hide. This is, so, this is so skillful. It's so skillful how we hide. You hide behind this kind of veneer that nothing can touch you, you know? And, and there's this kind of, it's kind of apathy that I can live it up. I can do whatever, whatever I want, and I will not be affected. I can do whatever I want on a weekend, and my Monday will start the same. And you really do. You give off this veneer that nothing affects you. But you know it. It haunts you. Nobody knows the real you because you will not tell anyone about the emptiness that's inside and the dissatisfaction that haunts you and the loneliness that's there. So we're insecure. And so what we do is we find our identity in things besides God. And then we know that there's something wrong with us. And so we hide. We hide our real selves and it hurts relationships. And then thirdly, right, what, it, what, what ends up happening is we blame shift. Verse 12 and 13. Watch Adam and Eve's response. It is it actually, I think, it's kind of funny. The result of their sin is that they want to make excuses, right? It's one more way to hide. If I can shift the blame, the guilt, off of myself and put it on other people then I can be okay. I can be righteous in God's sight, we think. And so, and so, right, God comes after Adam and says, did you eat of the tree which I commanded you? And Adam's response says, no, this, the woman you gave me made me eat. And then God comes to Eve and says, did, you know, what did you do? And she says, well, no, the serpent made me eat. And they keep trying to shift the blame. If you're honest, Adam actually blamed God. Did you see that? He said, it's the woman you gave me, God. If you hadn't given her to me, I would be okay. And this is us. What we do and what kills our relationships is, is instead of owning responsibility, instead of owning the pain and the sin that we cause in our brokenness, we blame shift. I get a call every semester from a parent, every semester. And this is how the conversation starts. And I understand I will probably do the same thing about Shelby when she ends up a crazy pastor's kid or something. But the conversation always says this, I need you to call so-and-so. He's a good kid. He just kind of got in the wrong crowd his freshman year. See, it's a blame shift. He's not the problem. It's the friends around him. And it's just a lie. Not actually never being a healing until somebody owns that. 
And I've never once, I don't say that, I don't say this condemning. I'm the same way. I've never once in my three years of campus ministry had one of you meet with me, and I love getting to know you. I want to meet with you because, because you're having roommate difficulties and you started the conversation like this. I think I'm really hard to live with. Will you help me see that? Instead, the conversation is always this. She drives me crazy because she doesn't get me or she's not clean or fill in the blank. And the main reason, right, the main reason for the tension always is them, not me. And there'll always be dysfunction as long as, as long as we don't own who we are. And some of you, and I, I hate this, okay, some of you, you're going to blame other things for the reason that you walked away from your marriage. You'll blame the in-laws, you'll blame money, and some of you are going to blame God because what you're going to say is God wants me to be happy, and I'm not happy in this marriage, and you'll leave. And you have subtly blamed God, just like Adam did, for your wife. And it's a blame shift. And so often, the distinguishing problem in our relationships and in your relationship that you never really consider is that you might indeed be the problem. And until you own that, there'll never be health. There'll always be dysfunction. And lastly, right, it always leads to a self-centered life, and there's not a particular verse. This is just what happens in chapter 3. When we sin against God, when Adam and Eve rebel, and that just fuses through our nature, the essence of sins we turn inward. And what Adam and Eve think and what you and I begin to think is that the world revolves around me and that life is about my desires, my needs, my wants, and the way I see things instead of what God sees and what God wants and what God says I need. And so we walk into relationships asking, how will you serve me? How will you make me happy? How will you meet my needs? Instead of saying, how can I serve you and lay down my life for you? And so when facing any kind of struggle in any kind of relationship, I'm telling you, dare to do the first thing and look and say, I bet there's a measure of my self-centeredness that is the problem. Can I see it? And can I own it? So I'm going to sum up everything that Genesis 3 talks about. And I realize, like, this is kind of a depressing chapter, okay? But this really does mean this. You are incredibly healthy. You're incredibly healthy in your dating relationship and your friendships. When you finally believe that this friendship is hard, this dating relationship is hard, this marriage is going to be hard because I'm in it. I'm the problem. What's hard is she's dating me. That's what's hard. And if I'm the problem... Right? We come to the conundrum. If I'm the problem, how in the world can I be healed? Because if I'm so inwardly selfish, right, the answer can't be that I just need to remove them from, the, from my life. Something's got to happen inside of me. And it's a lot bigger than just we, we, we misstep morally here and there, and so I need some kind of behavior modification. And just do one, two, three, like read your Bible and you'll be okay. Something deep within us is wrong. Something outside of us has to come in and fix us and begin to heal us. And that's what happens, right? Verse 8 through 11, some of those incredible verses in your Bible. Consider this. If you feel exposed tonight, I, I really do. I hope I haven't come across as harsh tonight. I hope. Um, but I do want you to be exposed, 
Because if you feel exposed, the reason I've tried to lovingly address things in your life and the way that sin works is because the Bible assumes only if you get exposed and only if you really see who you really are is there any hope of healing. Because the more that the Bible exposes you and the more that you admit, I'm a sinful mess, even after I'm a Christian, then guess what? If you'll turn, you'll find Jesus' love is greater than your mess. And Jesus' love is more thrilling, and His grace is even better than you thought. Which means your exposure, if you'll own it, is strangely good news. It's great news. Because something amazing happens in these verses, right? In verse 8, God comes after Adam. He seeks him out. It makes no sense. Right? If I was to create the world and to create people in my image to be in perfect relationship with me, and they looked at me and said, I want nothing to do with you. I'd rather find my identity in something else. It's over. Your Bible's three pages long. I just start over. But he doesn't do that. He doesn't start over. He goes after them because the message of the Bible is that the holy, eternal, unchangeable God is a God of grace who's come to deal with our sin. He's come to heal people from their sin rather than destroy them. But honestly, how many of you, the way that you picture God is one that runs away from your mess and retreats from your mess and says, get your life together and then maybe I'll come after you? That's not the God of Genesis. It's not the God of the Bible. Our only hope is that we have a God who will pursue us even when we run and hide. A book that I've kind of really grown more and more to love, something I read to Shelby all the time, it's called The Runaway Bunny. Anybody remember that story from your childhood? All right, it's not complicated. All that happens is there's a little bunny who decides that maybe it'd be more fun to be away from the mom bunny. So, so what she keeps saying is, I'm running away, mom. And every time the mother bunny says, if you run away, I'll run after you because you're my little bunny. So then right what she says, well, look, I'm going to become a fish, and I'll go in a trout stream, and I'll run away. And she says, okay, well, I'll become a fisherman, and I'll catch you. You know, and then the bunny says, well, well I'll, I'll, I'll become a, uh, a boat. And then she says, well, I'll become the wind and blow you back to me. And the little bunny keeps coming up with things, ways she's going to get away from her mom. And the mom keeps coming up with a better image of how she's going to keep pursuing him and never let, her, let him get away. No matter what the little bunny does, the mother keeps pursuing. That's what we long for, right? That's what we long for. And it's actually a display of the gospel. Because we've said no to God, and we said, I'm running away from you. I would rather hide. And God says, okay, well, I'll become human, and I'll pursue you, and I'll win you back. It's the message of the Bible. I will take on death the thing that you deserve so that I don't have to be separated from you. That's the promise in verse 15, right? He promises, he promises that the seed of the serpent, uh, that the seed of the woman is going to crush the head of the serpent. What is that promise? It's that a real man, a real man is going to come from the fruit of, from fruit of a woman's womb and crush Satan and crush selfishness and crush our dysfunction. But how's it going to happen? By him being crushed and him being bruised, right? That's what it says. As the Bible unfolds, you realize that this promise, this promised seed is Jesus. And he does what we cannot do for ourselves. He loves us. And he comes after us. And we know that he should turn away from us because we're full of sin. But he says, if you'll receive it, you'll see I turn away from my own son instead of you. 
because your sin will go on him and Jesus' righteousness will go on you. And that has to start healing you of your insecurity, right? If you base your identity on your love of God, it's going to waver and it's going to change if you're anything like me. But Jesus says you don't have to be afraid anymore. The only way you're going to find security is if your identity is built on something that will not change. And the message of Christianity is you can be reconciled to God once for all and it's sheer grace. Because what saves you is what Jesus did 2,000 years ago and not how well you love him today. And Jesus on the cross says it's finished. I have taken all your sin and given you my complete righteousness and nothing can change it. And as that becomes your identity, it restores you and it takes away fear. And then it starts bringing you out of hiding, right? Because you can be found. My little two-year-old Annie wants to play hide-and-seek but she hides for three seconds and jumps out because she doesn't want to be alone and she wants her daddy to find her. That's what we want. We know we're messed up. And Jesus brings you out of hiding by saying, I know you. I know the worst about you. I know the things that you've never told anybody. And I'm still coming after you. And yeah, those things are bad. Those things are so bad when they get placed on me, I get crushed by the God of this universe but it's for you. And then that starts healing your blame shifting, right? I don't have to shift blame anymore. If someone criticizes me or I see my own sin, I can just own it. I can say, yep, this is who I am. And that, funny enough, drives you farther into the mercy of Jesus and makes you love him all the more because his grace and love is that much better. And finally, it destroys your self-absorption by getting you out of yourself and you get lost in the beauty of his love. Because you just realize that his love, his commitment to me, is better than anything else this world can offer without cheapening those things. Jesus promises to make the dirty clean, to restore the broken, to cover our shame with his perfect obedience, and to restore us and begin to heal our relationships so you can actually get out of yourself and be freed from the need of people's approval to actually serve people. And so I I'll just end with an invitation. Man, can you tonight own up for the first time or the hundredth time or the thousandth time who you are and realize you can run to Jesus and there's an unwavering love and forgiveness there and it never runs out. That's an invitation. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. um, And we thank you that the gospel is good news. Lord, too often we live like the gospel is good advice. That's just kind of telling us how we need to live and get our life together so that God will actually love us. But we thank you that you come after us when we didn't even want to get our lives together, when we're running from you, when we're retreating from you and would rather just be away from you. Thank you that you love us so much that you pursue us to the point of death, even death on a cross. Lord, you help us to taste and see and what is a very hard passage, help us to taste and see that our sin is bitter, but that Jesus' grace is better. In your son's name I pray. Amen.